Well, let's then turn to uh, John Calvin's favorite epistle, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And um, I think one of the reasons why it was uh, Calvin's favorite letter was because it is so uh, church-centered. It is the, um, the letter in the New Testament which is centered upon the people of God and their responsibilities under the Lord. And it gives us a marvelous revelation about how the Lord has worked for the church in particular. So as Calvin was obsessed with the church and taught us so much in his works about the church from the scripture, it's not surprising that it was, as I say, his favorite letter, which he stated on several occasions. And when you come to uh, Ephesians, uh, to me, uh, reading the letter to the Ephesians is a little bit like being stood on the edge of the universe and uh, being told what it is all about. We have uh, revelation in this book which is uh, not given elsewhere about some of the great and glorious things which are going to take place in the future. Everything that we see in this letter is on the grandest possible scale uh, and is presented from the, the broadest, uh, most cosmic uh, perspective. Uh, do you want to know what God's ultimate master plan for the universe is? Well, if you were to ask yourself a question like that, then uh, I would suggest that Ephesians is a wonderful place to go. For example, we read, and the trouble with Ephesians 1, or the whole of Ephesians, but particularly Ephesians 1, is that it is so condensed that when we read the letter, and, and we read chapter 1, and I read it as slowly as I dare, but when we read that chapter, there is so much there, it's, it's very, very difficult to take it all in. Um, although I'm sure all of us have studied it before and, and we understand its truths, but nonetheless it is difficult to take it. Look, for example, I would say, what is God's master plan for the universe? Look at verse 10, for example. His master plan is this, chapter 1, verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, in other words, at the end of it all, when his plan is finally completely unrolled, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. This glorious conception of God bringing everything in heaven and earth into a complete unity, into oneness in him. I mean, that is a, a huge concept which it would take our lives to unravel just that one verse in Ephesians 1. God's purpose in the universe is not only connected with us. We are the crown of his creation. We are the ones that he is most concerned and obsessed about. We are the ones who are made in his image and desperately need the salvation that he freely offers and gives us in Christ Jesus. But that is not the whole story. The church will play a great part in the unfolding of the plan. We do already, and ultimately we shall. But the fact is that God has a greater plan. Our sin has affected the whole universe, and every remnant and every consequence of sin has to be banished from the new heavens and the new earth. So he has this plan to bring everything together, all things in heaven on earth, as one in and under and through 
the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a conception that blows our minds and helps us to realize it's not all about us. And sometimes as evangelicals, we can tend to think that. Sometimes we can be even worse and individualize everything and think it's all about me. But even thinking it's all about us is not sufficient. It is all about great and glorious cosmic things that the Lord has planned for his universe. Let's expand and blow our minds as uh, we think about these things. Um, we're not going to have time to do all of that tonight, obviously. But everything is on the grandest possible scale. This is big picture stuff, if you like, when we come to Ephesians. So it's not surprising, therefore, that when it comes to ecclesiology, which is just the fancy name for the doctrine of the church, when it comes to the teaching of the Apostle Paul on the nature of the church, what the church is all about in Ephesians, this is what we get. It's one of the major themes of the letter, as I've said. But when he's thinking in big picture terms, it is therefore not surprising that he does not focus upon the local church and all its narrow parochial problems, which are many. He, he doesn't do that at all. Instead, in this letter, he concentrates upon the church in her totality. And she is pictured in Ephesians as she is pictured nowhere else in the writings of the Apostle Paul. She is pictured as one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, spiritually raised up with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places, which is exactly what Ephesians 2 and verse 6 says. It's taking the Lord, taking the church, the Lord's people, and seeing them as they are seen with God's eyes and saying this is a present reality which you need to understand if you want to see what the mission of the church in God's great plan really is. This is incidentally uh, why the answer to uh, a question that's sometimes asked. They say, can Paul really have written this letter? After all, Paul was in Ephesus in total for about uh, three years, considerably longer than Paul was present in any other church. And yet, uniquely, for a church like that, there are no personal references. There are no greetings to people that he must have known. There are no references to problems or difficulties in the church, which we know there were. And people say, well, how could Paul have written that? Even when he was writing the Romans, or lots of greetings and contexts, even though he hadn't even visited them at the time. And when you look at Corinthians, and when you look at Colossians, are all these people that are mentioned, the Philippians. But in Ephesus, in Ephesians, not at all. And people say, well, either Paul didn't write it, or it wasn't written to the Ephesians in the first place, or something like that. But they fail to understand this whole context, that when he talks about the church in Ephesians, he is speaking in this global, exalted, heavenly sense. And he does not dilute his theme by referring and coming down simply to look at uh, parochial issues in the local church. You need to understand that. It's always good for a, an itinerant preacher, as I am these days, to be able to preach on big picture matters because these are always appropriate and sometimes neglected in a local church. And it's always difficult for a visiting preacher to come along and uh, preach uh, particular matters which may or may not be relevant to you as a church. At least that's how I feel. 
And so it's a good place for us to start. Here in Ephesians, if we want to understand and grasp something about what it means to serve the church. And that is really my theme because it's a very prominent sub-theme of the whole ecclesiology of Ephesians. How do we serve the church? And more importantly than that, and this is where Paul really gets uh, interesting, he tells us not merely how to serve the church, but something far more fundamental, something that underlies that whole idea. He tells us why we should serve the church. And I think we need to have some of this groundwork laid, these foundations laid. Sometimes people are slipshod in their service of their local church and they don't quite see why they should do certain things or others and so on and so forth. But what they need to have as a great incentive is an understanding of why we are to serve the church of Jesus Christ. And that really is uh, uh, giving form to what I'm saying here uh, this evening. And in fact, I just have two points. Because that was a fairly long introduction, you're going to get away with two points here this evening. And so they're easy to remember. And uh, if I see you afterwards, I shall question you on them so you can remember them. If I had seven points, I wouldn't do it to you, not on a Sunday evening. But if I've got two points, maybe you'll remember them. And these two points are simply these. Why should we serve the church? Two reasons why we should serve the church. And the first reason is this. Because the whole of creation serves the church. This is the first motivation, the first incentive that I want to give you tonight from God's word. Why should we serve the church of Jesus Christ? Here's the first reason. Because the whole of creation serves the church. Now, we read a little earlier uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians, and we've read how God the Father has placed at the end of chapter 1 everything under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, his Son. And why has he done that? Well, the answer is clear in verse 22 of chapter 1. And he, that is the Father, put all things under his, that is the Son's, feet and gave him to be head over all things, why? To the church. Or we might translate it, for the church. It says, to the church. Everything is under God's, everything is under son, the Son's headship for the benefit of, of the church, so that the church will benefit from all that takes place. For the church, to the church. That's the last phrase here. In the original, it's all the emphasis is upon that. That's the climax of the sentence. All of this is done for the church. In other words, in these last days in which we live, these gospel days, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been given complete control over every spiritual power, whether good or evil, every force of nature, and every twist and turn of human history, 
so that all of these things are compelled, whether willingly or not, whether knowingly or not, they are compelled to serve his church so that no accident or persecution can ultimately harm us and no enemy can ultimately prevail against us. And whether it's the seemingly relentless march of secularism or whether it's the cruelest forms of false religious fanaticism, whatever it is, both of these forces and every other shall be bent by the will of Christ to the ultimate blessing of the church of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? This is what is taught in the word of God. This is implicit in the fact that we have a sovereign God who rules the universe and all human affairs and all spiritual forces and all of these things look again at verse 22 have been put under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ for the benefit of the church of Jesus and so it doesn't seem like it does it it doesn't seem like it we look at the chaos uh, all around us whether it be uh, our present political turmoil in this country or whether it be terrible things that happen around the world whether it be so-called acts of God whatever it may be man's inhumanity to man down the eons of time nonetheless all of these things we are told and this is an article of faith for the Christian but an article of faith which will bring much blessing if it is truly believed that all things are under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ for the blessing of the church. That is how exalted the church is in the mind and heart of God. He loves the church more than anything else in the whole of creation. God loves the church of Jesus Christ. And therefore, everything else is compelled to serve the church. Now, that's, that's the end of it. That's how it will be. And at the moment, we're going through that process. And all the things that seem to happen, which are contrary to that idea and that thought and that reality, all of those things, ultimately, we will see are all for the benefit of the church of Jesus Christ. And if this is true, which it is, because we've just seen it in God's word, and we could demonstrate it from various other parts of the word of God as well, of course, but here it's so plain. If this is true, here's the question. Shall the church of God herself not willingly and gladly cooperate with God's design? It sounds a foolish question, almost a blasphemous question. If God is going to mold everything in the world, everything in the universe, for the blessing of the church, shall we say, oh, well, that's nothing to do with me. I don't need to do anything. I'm not going to serve the church. Of course not. If we're true believers at all, if we're members of the church of Christ, members of the body of Christ, then we will say, we recognize this is God's design and we're going to be on the very forefront of furthering God's purposes. 
most of the world, the unbelieving world, is unwillingly or unknowingly going to be serving the church. But we do it both willingly and knowingly. We deliberately serve the church of Jesus Christ. And the fact that everything else is ultimately going to do the same thing is a tremendous incentive. It makes us want to serve him all the more. We want to win that race. We want to pass through the tape first of all, having served the Lord God with everything. And let the world be reluctantly dragged along in the same direction. But we're going to be in the front of that great endeavor. And we're going to serve the Lord with all our might and all our power in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Motivated by truths like this in order that we may serve the church. Why should we serve the church? Well, it's a pretty good reason, isn't it? Because the whole of creation serves the church. Let me give you a better reason. Let me give you a bigger reason. It's big enough that the whole of creation serves the church. But here's a bigger and better reason. This is my second point, my last point. Here it is. Why should we serve the church? Because the creator himself serves the church. And this is most wonderful of all. It's fairly astonishing that the whole of creation serves the church. But it's even more amazing that the creator himself serves the church. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is not only the head of this rebellious, sin-sick universe in which we live. He is also the head of those that he has redeemed from it. And these two headships are seen side by side in the last two verses of chapter 1. Here it is. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things for the church. That's the first headship. He is head over everything. Whether it willingly submits to him or not, it is all going to be bent to the service of the church. And now there's a second headship. All things to the church, which is his body. Why is it his body? Because he is the head. And that's going to be developed, of course, particularly throughout this epistle, but also in other parts of the scriptures, as you know, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Two headships in those two verses. But what very different headships they are. As head of this rebellious universe, he fills it with what? He fills it with his authority. He fills it with his rule. He fills it with his power. He fills it with his control. So ultimately, he will make sure that it serves the church. But when we come to the body, he doesn't stamp upon the body in order to make it fulfill his will. Not at all. When it comes to the body, as head of his body, the church, he fills her with his spirit and with his grace and with his gifts. He is the head of the universe, but the universe is not his body. 
Only the church has this amazing and intimate privilege and union with Christ. The body which is Christ and the body, the head which is Christ and the body which is the church are united, obviously. And that union is the glorious source of all our blessing. And how did this union come about? Well, of course, you know the answer. Through the most astounding act of sacrificial love that this world has seen or could ever see. And I suppose there's a verse in Mark's Gospel which is particularly relevant to our theme this evening, a verse you know very well, where Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, verse 45. And that verse is a key to us understanding what Paul is writing about in this context in Ephesians. If you turn on to chapter 5 of Ephesians, there's this glorious uh, passage which I've preached on many times at a Christian wedding. Um, from verse 25, husbands love your wives. And uh, wives, well, from verse 22, it's wives submit to your husbands. I used to love preaching on wives submit to your husbands. Uh, when all these young ladies brought along all their unbelieving friends. And I would say, wives submit to your husbands. And you could just see them bristle at the thought that a wife was going to submit to her husband. It seemed the most dreadful form of drudgery and slavery that you could imagine. And there it is in the Word of God. If ever there was a proof that the Bible was full of outdated and relegated thoughts, there it was. And yet I would always say when the bride was there and I was marrying the two people, I would say, look, you may find that hard to understand, but don't you realize that this woman already has a Lord and Master whom she serves with all her heart? and desires to do his will completely. And she finds that gives her the greatest joy in her life that she has ever had. And she finds that gives her the freedom in her life that she has never had before. Because this Lord and Master tells, us, tells her how she was designed to live and gives her all the strength and power to live in that way. You know, you, People just take verses out of Scripture and say, oh, they can't be true because of this, that, and the other. Goodness me, we have to pit the truth of the Word of God against these passing false realities that are given to us in the world today. Virtual realities that have no substance, and yet they're taught as though they're truth. We have to compete with that, and we must. We have the truth which is going to last way beyond any fashionable ideas that exist in the world in our generation. And here... The relationship between a husband and a wife is meant to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. It's not just a, an illustration. It's far more than that. God designed man, male and female, in that binary way so that they should reflect the very nature of the Godhead. And so there's something very profound in the way that men and women are created and in the point of marriage and what it's all about, but we can't get into that. Look at the, the, this, what it's saying about here. Let's just 
concentrate upon the story of Christ and the church. The husband is the head of the wife, verse 23 in Ephesians 5, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. And then if we jump to verse 25, you'll see there that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He's thinking of the church corporately here, which we don't think about enough because we think very individually. It's part of our enlightenment thinking that evangelicals have been infected with over recent centuries, that we are very individualistic in the way that we consider our salvation in Christ. But corporately is the way that the Word of God always thinks about salvation. That's why the church is so important. He loved the church and gave himself for her. What did he do? Look at verses 26 to 27. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And you see in these verses here, they traverse the whole of the gospel. Just verses 25 to 27 go from the cross and they go through the glorious resurrection and his exaltation, and they end up in verse 27 in his triumphal return. And all the while, the Lord is serving the church throughout this gospel age. From the cross to his return, he is serving the church of Jesus Christ. The symbols of the body and the bride almost coalesce in this most beautiful passage. But all the time, Christ is serving and blessing the church he dearly loves. Sometimes Christians say, oh, well, the Lord Jesus Christ, he died upon the cross. He did everything for me there. And now it's my turn. It's as though God says to his people, right, over to you. I've done everything you need. I've done it all. I've saved you. Now it's your turn. Now you serve me. And that would be a very naive and simplistic and in itself a wrong way of looking at things because the Lord Jesus Christ continues to serve his people. Everything that we receive, every gift and grace we receive, we receive at his hand, in our lives, in our generation, into the future until Christ returns. He is constantly serving the church. He did not come to be served but to serve. He did that throughout his life. He did that supremely upon the cross. And then he rose from the dead. You know, the, the, <laughs> the ascension is so prominent here. If you go back to uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and you just look at verse 20 uh, for a moment. Oh, well, verse 19. The exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. It's a picture of the ascension. The resurrection is the first stage of the rocket of, a, of the ascension. That's how I like to think of it. And as he ascends into glory, from the resurrection onward, it's a bit like, you know, Saturn V rocket. Those of you who are old enough, like I am, to remember the Saturn V rocket, which uh, took the Apollo spacecraft to the moon. They are still, to this day, the most powerful rockets 
that human beings have ever built. And I remember how slowly they mounted uh, past the gantry. If you can remember some of those great pictures, these huge rockets, and they were built in stages, as you know. I sometimes think of the resurrection of Jesus as just the first stage of the ascension. That's how it's pictured here, because it doesn't mention the ascension. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. This raising from the dead continues as it were, from the resurrection and through the ascension is simply part of the same story, far above all principalities and power. He passes all these principalities and powers. He passes all these spiritual forces. He takes them captive, as we learn in chapter 4. If we've got time, we could look at that. I don't know whether we've got time. But anyway, he takes captive all of these forces. And because he takes captive everything in the universe in his ascension, which is a vital doctrine, to understand this, he takes captive in rising and ascending, he takes captive all these forces and powers so that when eventually he reaches the highest place and is seated at the right hand of the Father, everything is literally beneath his feet. And he has taken them captive so that he can use and bend and twist and manipulate every power and every force for the blessing of his church so that he has to ascend in order to give gifts to men by which we may serve him throughout our lives and so the church can function as the church is meant to function. Without the ascension, it is impossible. But you can see what he does. In the ascension, through the power of the resurrection, through the nature of what he's done upon the cross, through his redemptive work, he is able to do this and sweep up all these powers and forces in order that they may transform them by his grace and the Holy Spirit may deliver these gifts and graces into the hearts and lives of the church of God throughout all time until he returns. And that's the picture. It's all one. It's all one. And the Lord Jesus Christ continues to serve us through this age. If you have this dynamic, this organic picture in your mind and in your heart, you can see it, that he gives everything to us in this way. And... Um, well, just turn to chapter 4, and then I'm going to finish. Turn to chapter 4 just for a moment. Um, and uh, look, here it is reinforced for us. But to each one of us, verse 7, here it is. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says in Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He came to the earth in the incarnation. He who descended to the earth is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be, here are the, the first, the principal ascension gifts. Notice they are word gifts. Notice they are people, but they are people with word gifts because this is the foundation this is why the Bible is so central to us. Because the first gifts to establish all of this are gifts of the word which will abide for us. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So he equips us, he continues to serve us all the time, so that we might be equipped to serve the body. And through serving the body, we serve him, because the body is his body. 
till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. See what I'm saying? Everything, everything we need in order to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head comes from him. He alone continues to serve the church. If he did not, the church would founder and die. He provides all the resources that we need to grow. What greater incentive could we have to serve the church of Jesus Christ than the knowledge that he is leading the way? He is serving the church, and because of that, we should long to serve the church. Friends, it cannot be wrong to love what Jesus loves, can it? It cannot be wrong to love what Jesus loved. We read in Ephesians 5 verse 25 that Christ loved the church, the most loved and treasured thing in the universe as far as God is concerned. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I want to ask you here as I close, do you love what Christ loves? And in particular, do you love the thing that Christ loves most? Do you love the church of Jesus Christ more than anything else in the universe? Of course you love God. I'm talking about created things. Do you love the church of Jesus Christ as Christ loves the church? That's my challenge to you. Because if you do, then you will want to serve the church. Why should you serve the church? Because the whole of creation serves the church, but supremely because the creator himself serves the church. We have no higher incentive to do the same.